This is February 23rd, 2020, and uh, for Teisho this morning, I'm going to read and from and comment on a book, uh, true story, and not far back in history, a true story of a, of a kind of a hermit or a recluse might be the better word, modern day recluse in Maine. Uh, I've come to learn that uh, some of you uh, have heard about this uh, uh, some a few years ago when he was first discovered uh, from news reports. Uh, and then this uh, a book was written by Michael Finkel. The book is called The Stranger in the Woods. Um, the subtitle is The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit. It was a, became a national bestseller. And um, just to kind of summarize this guy's situation, when he's, when he's 20 years old, that was in 1986, he kind of, on an impulse, he drove as far as he could into the Maine woods, inland, inland Maine, and uh, then walked farther until he found a secluded place, a really secluded place, not far from uh, the sounds of civilization. And, uh, and he didn't come out for 27 years. Uh, he talked to no one during those 27 years. And of course, 27 years means 27 main winters. Talked to no one during that time. Didn't want to talk to anyone, obviously. Um, what's fascinating is that he, he he didn't prepare for it at all. He again on an impulse. He uh, had been in uh, taken a trip to Florida, and uh, he had borrowed his brother's car, and he drove he drove up. Uh, and driving up from Florida, something happened. And we don't know what, but when he got back, drove past his home for the last time, and then uh, left the car with the seats with the uh, keys uh, there between the front seats, and didn't come out for decades. This is uh, this brings up all manner of things about solitary practice. Uh, hermits in China, India, Japan, and others. Uh, and I um, mostly want to uh, distinguish between what he did and what a religious hermit would uh, endeavor to do and the, or the motivation behind such a person. Uh, let's see, some more before I get into that this comment commenting uh just to give you a sense of of what an unbelievable situation this was uh, <clears throat> there was nothing really out of the ordinary much about his uh his upbringing his family uh, 
one of five boys in the family. Uh, they were a bright family. Um, this 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 fellow's name is, is Chris Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T. Uh, he described late, later after he was uh, apprehended, he was described as someone with uh, obsessed his fam. He described his family as obsessed with privacy. They socialized, the family socialized with a small group of friends and relatives and virtually no one else. The family was smart. They were later described smart, honest, hardworking, self sufficient, well respected, quiet. And he himself, uh, Knight, insisted that he had a fine youth and this is a quote from the author excuse me the author's name is Michael Finkel he's a journalist who uh, at the time of this book was living in western Montana Uh, in Chris's words no complaints I had good parents and when he disappeared that day in 1986 and remained disappeared His family never contacted the police about his disappearance, although they did file a missing person report. Other things that this author, he did did some some eight or ten interviews of Chris Knight in jail. Um, Yeah, which brings me to how he he could have managed for 27 years. Uh, uh, he, He burglarized cabins. He had had uh, some training in, um, in uh, electronics and uh, security systems, and uh, he learned that there were plenty of cabins and especially a big, uh, a big camp uh, structure, facilities for uh, the developmentally disabled uh, during the summer only. And uh, he found a way to slip into these cabins, uh, unoccupied cabins, uh, and uh, and this other one, the, the big camp for children, uh, using his skills as uh, uh, locksmith and and other things that he had learned. And uh, so when he finally was nabbed, uh, they put him in jail. And um, and that's when you know the news broke. Um, they the the locals knew most of them had concluded that there was a burglar about. Uh, they started comparing notes and found that he would take this or that to survive on. Uh, I think I'm not certain about this, but I don't remember anything in here about him hunting or fishing. He was so afraid of being discovered that uh, he had no gun. He he just remained secluded there, except on his night patrols when he would uh, raid the cabins. So when he was apprehended, he um, he had to account for uh, 27 years of burglaries. I think the author described it as uh, some 1,000 felonies. Uh, 
for which he felt, apparently, he said he felt very ashamed. His, he said his parents had raised him, and the neighbors confirmed this, to, with very strong moral uh, strictures. Uh, and, uh, and that itself is fascinating, that uh, uh, with, with that upbringing and his considerable shame after being caught, that in spite of that, he kept doing this. He was described, uh, when all the news broke, uh, he was dis- described as a wicked smart kid and a really good sense of humor by one, one fellow. Uh, at high, in high school, he attended no social events, played no sports, joined no clubs. He never went to a football game, and he skipped the prom, uh, though he did have, he said, two or three friends. Uh, his teacher in, in high school said, uh, a, um, excuse, not a uh, high school teacher, a uh, outdoor skills uh, instructor uh, later said that, I told every kid that if you're in a survival situation, life or death, and you come upon a camp, it's okay to break in. <laughs> <laughs> this is accepted in Maine. So he just kept himself in a survival situation. Uh, yeah, he he uh, he wanted to be a computer technician. Um, he didn't want to play on teams. He took a nine-month electronics course, and uh, that included computer repair. And then he found a job installing home and vehicle alarm systems. This is his description of what happened to him on that trip back from Florida. He continued all the way back to Maine. Uh, there weren't many roads. He chose one that went right by his house. He said, uh, I think it was just to have one last look around, to say goodbye. He didn't stop. He kept going, quote, up and up and up. Soon he reached the shore of Moosehead Lake, the largest lake in Maine, where the state begins to get truly remote. I drove until I was nearly out of gas, I took a small road, then a small road off that small road, then a trail off that, and then he went as far as he could, and then he uh, left. No, he had a tent and a backpack, but no compass, no map. And then the chapter ends, without knowing where he was going, with no particular place in mind, he stepped into the trees and walked away. His campsite was uh, 100 square feet. It was so secluded uh, that there were reports of people having walked near there, very near there, uh, without ever having been able to get in. He had found some kind of a redoubt where there were huge boulders. They were kind of encircling, not entirely, but somewhat encircling the campsite deep, deep brush, thick brush, 
and uh, and and he was so afraid of being seen uh, or discovered that uh, he didn't want to leave any footprints in the snow, and that meant not leaving that hundred square foot campsite through the whole winter and with no fire. So how did he manage to survive? Well, he didn't just steal food from these cabins. He stole all kinds of things, sleeping bags, um, clothes of every kind, uh, heavy clothes, uh, books. Um, he just holed up there. And even in the summer, that, that would be uh, also dangerous in his eyes because uh, that's when there might be hikers. Uh, so he waited until the nighttime uh, to venture out. And uh, there's a whole description of the way he, how stealthily he moved through the forest uh, after, after they had apprehended him. At some point they took him back because they wanted him to sh show them the authorities, where he'd been all those years when everyone was reporting burglaries. And the, uh, the man who was behind him on that uh, little trail, it wasn't a trail, who was behind, walking behind him, who had been, uh, who was a, uh, a forest ranger, had been a forest ranger for 18 years, had been a Marine for 10 years, he, he absolutely could not believe how he moved. Uh, let me see if I have a description of that because that's pretty memorable. Oh yeah, it says here a constant dilemma was the moon question. For a while, he opted to go out when the moon was large, so he could use it for the light. Um, in later years, he suspected the police had intensified their search for him, and he, he'd memorized much of the forest. And he switched to staying in uh, when the moon was bright. He liked to vary his methods. He even varied how often he varied them. He didn't want to develop any patterns of his own. He did make a habit to embark on a raid only when freshly shaved or with a neatly groomed beard and wearing clean clothing to reduce suspicion on the slight chance that he was spotted. He never risked breaking into a home occupied year-round, too many variables, and he always wore a watch so he could monitor the time. So that's, that's other contraband of his. He would steal watches and flashlights. It says, like a vampire, he did not want to stay out past sunrise. He noticed when several cabins left out pens and paper requesting a shopping list. So they, they got some of them, not, not all of them, but some of them uh, developed a sympathy for him. And, uh, and and invited him to write 
what what he liked for his shopping list. <laughs> Others offered him bags of books hanging from a doorknob. If you had a really sophisticated door lock, he'd go in through a window. The idea of smashing glass or kicking down a door was appalling to Knight, the purview of barbarians. When he was finished stealing, he would often reseal the hasp on the window he'd unlatched and exit through the front door, making sure the handle was set, if possible, to lock up behind himself. No need to leave the place vulnerable to thieves. <laughs> he said that every uh, the moment he opened a lock and entered a home, he always felt a hot wave of shame. And these are his words. Every time I was very conscious that I was doing wrong, I took no pleasure in it, none at all. Oh, he'd steal uh, propane tanks. Yeah, so he didn't have a fire, but he had propane tanks and a source of, of uh, heat. Once he'd gotten stocked up, he said, uh, um, ahead of me was a long stretch of peace. No, not peace. That's too icky of a word. A long stretch of calm. Each raid brought him enough supplies to last about two weeks, and as he settled once more into his room in the woods, quote, back in my safe place, success, he came as close as he could to experiencing joy. They re the, the, the book reports that he stayed phenomenally healthy. It says, though he suffered deeply at times, that would have been in the, especially in the winter, he insists he never once had a medical emergency or a serious illness or a bad accident or even a cold. Poison ivy, he had to contend with poison ivy. Lyme disease was always a concern. <laughs> but this is how he dealt with it. He said, he, he said, it says he brooded about Lyme disease for a while, then came to a realization. I couldn't do anything about it, so I stopped thinking about it. <laughs> he never stole homemade meals or unwrapped items for fear someone might poison him. So everything he took came sealed in a carton or a can. His only significant health issue was, were his, was his teeth. He brushed regularly from stolen toothpaste, uh, but he did not see a dentist and his teeth began to rot. It didn't help that his culinary preferences never progressed beyond the sugar and processed food palate of a teenager. Cooking is too kind a word for what I did, he said. His staple meal was macaroni and cheese. <laughs> just, just quickly, some of the stuff he feasted on. He once, uh, uh, he had a, his he had his own dump there, just outside the perimeter of his campsite, um, and they found the authorities found a thirty 
30-ounce container of, well, cheddar-flavored goldfish crackers, a five-pound tub from marshmallow fluff, (laughs) a box that had held 16 Drake's Devil Dogs. There were packages from graham crackers, tater tots, baked beans, shredded cheese, hot dogs, maple syrup, chocolate bars, cookie dough, Betty Crocker scalloped potatoes, and Tyson chicken strips. Country Time Lemonade and Mountain Dew, El Monterey Spicy Jalapeno and Cheese Chimichangas. And then the author comments, Knight had fled the modern world only to live off the fat of it. The food, he, Knight pointed out, wasn't exactly his choice. It was first selected by the cabin owners and then snatched by him. He stole frozen lasagna, canned ravioli, Thousand Island dressing, Cheetos and bratwurst and pudding and pickles, quarry a trench deep enough to fight a war from, crystal-like Cool Whip, chock full of nuts, Coke, and you still wouldn't reach the bottom. And then what did he do uh, when he wasn't... Oh, by the way, his campsite was absolutely immaculately tended and, and, and ordered. Some of you will be getting a pretty clear psychological profile here. Um, all right. Um, It wasn't reading or listening to the radio that actually occupied the majority of Knight's free time. Mostly what he did was nothing. He sat on his bucket or in his lawn chair in quiet contemplation. There was no chanting, no mantra, no lotus position. Daydreaming, he termed it. Meditation, these are his words. Meditation, thinking about things. (laughs) thinking about whatever I wanted to think about. And then the author says that Knight believes there isn't nearly enough nothing in the world anymore. He could hear uh, the power boats uh, from a nearby pond and voices, actually, of people Uh, which he thought was the quintessential sound of humans at play. His closest companion may have been a mushroom. There are mushrooms all over Knight's Woods, but this particular one, a shelf mushroom, jutted at knee height from the trunk of the largest hemlock in Knight's camp. The mushroom meant something to him. One of the few concerns Knight had after his arrest was that the police officers who tromped through his camp had knocked it down. Even in the warm months, Knight Knight rarely left his camp during the daytime. Let's get to uh, what the mental health authorities, uh, when they weighed in after his arrest. 
Uh, first it says, Knight thought of himself uh, in the grand, as being in the grand tradition of Stoicism, as the opposite of crazy, as entirely clear-headed and rational. When he learned that the bundles of magazines buried at his site were regarded by some locals as an eccentric habit, he was infuriated. Everything he did in the woods, he said, had a reason. People don't comprehend the reasons. They only see craziness and absurdness. I had a strategy, a long-term plan. They don't comprehend because I'm not there to explain it. And then the author says, those bundles were a sensible recycling of reading material into floorboards. He insists that his escape should not be interpreted as a critique of modern life. He says, I wasn't consciously judging society or myself. I just chose a different path. And then the author says, yet he'd seen enough of the world from his perch in the trees to be repulsed by the quantity of stuff people bought while the planet was casually poisoned. Everyone hypnotized into apathy by, quote, a bunch of candy-colored fluff on a billion and one little screens. Knight observed modern life and recoiled from its banality. <clears throat> uh, recently, when talking about this book to someone, I mentioned that he, uh, rather casually in a, in a group conversation, I said he just... He hated people. Um, and I think a better way of saying that is uh, he hated being in the presence of people, which is pretty close to hating people. Uh, someone else said, well, he was uncomfortable around people. Well, that's a lot of uncomfort to spend 27 years in, a, in, a, in the woods. The uh, The State mental health authorities offered three diagnoses, Asperger's disorder, depression, or possible schizoid personality disorder. Um, and then the author helpfully distinguishes between, um, well, Asperger's, he, he, the author says, is no longer regarded as a, as a diagnosis exactly, but he, uh, it's, or it's on a spectrum the autism spectrum, and then the author distinguishes between autism and schizoid personality. This is what he says. Um, schizoid personality is not the same as schizophrenia, in which people characteristically lose contact with reality and often experience hallucinations and delusional thinking. <laughs> Schizoid personality is similar to autism in that people with either disorder rarely have close relationships and tend to be logical thinkers. Those with, those with autism, however, often want friends but find human social interaction too incomprehensible. People with schizoid personality disorder prefer to be solitary. They lack any general interest to be with others, even sexually. They know the social rules, but have decided not to follow them. They are indifferent to everyone else. I think that that, that seems, from my reading of this book, uh, to be, best describe uh, our 
friend Christopher Knight. And then he quotes, uh, the author quotes various uh, professionals of Harvard and everything about this guy. You know, he created such a sensation when he was when he was found when he was nabbed. Um, by the way, uh, the locals, the many, many, many locals who've been on the, on the, uh, have been victimized, have been burglarized, uh, half of them insisted that he could not have survived all those years in the woods alone. But then there were others and really well-trained woodsmen who, uh, who had been to his camp who said they believed completely. And there is no one in the book, there is no report of anyone who had ever encountered him. And then finally, one, one uh, uh, doctor, um, Derry, uh, one of these doctors said, nothing makes complete sense. The complexity of this guy is so puzzling, you could go anywhere diagnostically. There has to be a grandiosity to go through with a plan like that. It is so exceptional. Knight is like a Rorschach card. He really is an object for everyone to project onto. For 27 years, he did not take a shower, nap in a bed, or lounge on someone's sofa even for a minute. There were times he admitted when he wept, but he provided no further details. Well, that would be getting too much into the world of feeling. Sporadically, especially during the first decade, the idea of quitting his seclusion entered his mind. He had a system in place. He kept a whistle in his tent, and if he ever became too weak to move, he knew that if he blew on it in sustained sequences, the high-pitched sounds would carry across the water and help might eventually come. Civilization was three minutes away, but he never went except to steal. Now, now to get a bit more into the world of meditation and Zen in particular, the uh, the author spends a chapter reviewing um, the cases of hermits through the ages, um, and he he divides them into three categories, the, the protesters, the pilgrims, and the pursuers. Protesters seems to be most what, like our friend, was, would be considered um, leaving. Um, the reason for leaving is hatred of what the world has become. The, the example, an example of this is uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who said that uh, I have become solitary because to me the most desolate solitude seems preferable to the society of wicked men, which is nourished only in betrayals and hatred. Uh, the author also cites um, Lao Tzu, the uh, founder, if you will, of, of uh, Taoism, 6th century B.C., 
Um, so a, herm, a, a contemporary of the Buddha, um, he says that around a million protester hermits are living in Japan right now. They're called, and this is a surprise, they're called hikikomori, and it means pulling inward. And the majority are males, a, aged late teens and up, who have rejected Japan's competitive, conformist, pressure cooker culture. They have retreated into their childhood bedrooms and almost never emerge, in many cases for more than a decade. They pass the day reading or surfing the web. Their parents deliver, deliver meals to their doors and psychologists offer them counseling online. The media has called them the lost generation and the missing million. And then there are uh, pilgrims, uh, which are religious hermits. And here we can see that uh, this wouldn't apply to uh, Christopher Knight. Uh, he had no he had no religion as such, um, and and certainly no aspiration uh, to for enlightenment for sure. He just seemed to need the peace and stillness of being alone. More than, need it more than anything in the world. He would, in the winter, he would get force himself to get up with his battery of alarm clocks that he'd stolen. He would force himself to get up at two in the morning, because he knew he worried that if he, if he slept later than that, when the the temperature continued to drop into the wee hours of the morning, that he could freeze to death. Now, we know probably, uh, I've read in Taisho of, of uh, her, some of these hermits, these solitary monks who became masters living in the mountains in ancient China and, and even now in Japan or Tibet. Um, but in, in those cases, as far as I can tell from just what I remember, there is always the aspiration to go beyond themselves. Um, if it, even if it wasn't articulated as formally as enlightenment, there was this, this need to purify themselves, which is no evidence of in this book, of, in the case of Christopher Knight. And, and Zen has, has always warned of this rejection of the world except for maybe some periods of time. Um, there are people who are more, sol they're more solitary types, they're real introverts, and, and they can really run with meditation as a practice because it gives them, it's a way they can harness whatever aspiration they have in, in solitude. And I know uh, many of us have tried little dibs and dabs of that. I, I used to during uh, the Zen Center breaks, I would find a cabin or somewhere many times and just be there alone. It was, it was very soothing. Um, as counterpoint, especially if you're, say, if you're on staff, or even if you're not, uh, most Zen Center members are, uh, have very busy lives, going, going, going all the time. And uh, it can be so uh, healing to get away from all of that, 
for short periods. 27 years is a little long. <laughs> and, 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 and throughout the history of Chan, Zen, uh, there is this, this, you see it everywhere in the koans, this warning that, well, it's like Chinese master Yung Chia. He says, the one who clings to vacancy, neglecting the world of things, escapes from drowning but leaps into the fire. Emerson said, Solitude, the safeguard of mediocrity, is to genius the stern friend. So there is both the positive and the negative. Here's a Chinese proverb that, uh, that Chris Knight may have benefited from. Lonely study in the mountains reveals less than listening to strangers at a crossroad. So the, the value of living in the world, in, in, in Zen there is this phrase, not just Zen, the, 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 some of the Christian mystics and maybe others, this phrase, living in the world but not of the world. And this is where, where this Christopher Knight uh, fell so far, far short of envisioning a way in which he could have functioned in the world as he is now, by the way, he spent seven months in jail, and then he was finally released. They didn't know what to do with him. Uh, <laughs> he was released and, and, and had to live with his mother, um, and who he didn't want to live with. He didn't want to live with anyone. Uh, and so he's forced now. This is kind of an evolutionary move. He's forced to find a way to function in the world without... Uh, needing to escape from it. Wallace Stevens, after the final no, there comes a yes. On that yes, the future of our world depends. Mm -hmm. Look at the, uh, look at in the link, the 10 ox herding pictures, right outside us here, 20 feet away. They're, they're the, what is the last of these Tanakh, these stages of enlightenment? It's entering the marketplace with helping hands. That's the highest. There's a, there's a saying, I don't know if this is Zen or another tradition, that the, the, the true sage is not the sage of the forest or the desert or the mountains, but the sage of the marketplace. But this is a this is a high level of a high a very advanced stage of integration, and there's nothing wrong with recognizing if one isn't able to cope with the world to find a way to to harness one's need for solitude uh, to some extent. But then, in the end, what are we all what are we doing with this practice? It's what do we in in three minutes we're going to say, all beings without number, I vow to liberate. This is this is what it's all about. It's not just finding some quiet, calm place where we're not annoyed by other people. Um, it's doing this work in order to become vessels of service to help others. 
this is it's just indisputable as as the aspiration in in uh, at least Mahayana Buddhism. And not only Buddhism, I have here some words of Muhammad Ali. Service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. In the end, uh, Chris Knight was caught. He was snagged by his preferences, you know, affirming faith and mind. Those two first stanzas, the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. When preferences are cast aside, the way stands clear and undisguised. Becoming one with the circumstances of our life. Now, he had the freedom. He wasn't married and have a family. He didn't have a job he felt he had to stick with. Yeah, he had the freedom to leave all that aside. But especially for those of us who do have responsibilities, people who rely on us, we have to find a way to integrate this this stillness. Don't, don't think that we have, we have to find a place, literally a place, an environment, some place in the woods or the mountains or the desert for our stillness. Daily sitting is what brings us this stillness that we then uh, can take into the world of busyness and commotion. It does work. It's a, it's a long road. It's not easy. Uh, we have to just keep at it month after month, year after year. But then it does our, our, our experience of the world, this world, the Saha world of busyness and conflict and problems, it does become informed by this daily practice, this this uh, stillness, uh, and that's far evolutionary, far beyond what uh, our poor friend Christopher Knight um, was had to resort to. All right, our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. I'm going to prop up this, uh, leave this book propped up in the link if people just want to. Uh, Get a look at the cover, and I gobbled the whole thing up uh, on my trip to Mexico. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an easy read. <clears throat> All beings without number. I vow to liberate endless
I vow to penetrate the great way of 